Welcome to Vice and Easy, your podcast for all things Miami Vice with your host, Marina. Thank you again, as always, for joining me for another episode of Vice and Easy. This week, we're breaking down season two, episode 11, entitled Back in the World. But before we get to the episode, I just have a quick housekeeping note. Um, Last week, obviously, I took the week off, and I do have some very exciting things coming up in my future. However, unfortunately, it doesn't really gel with the schedule for recording podcasts. So you might notice a few pre-record episodes here and there in the future. Uh, So just bear with me. You know, things are changing for the better in my life, and I'm very happy. And these are things that I've been working very hard towards, and I do want to be able to balance it with the podcast. So you might just be getting a lot of gossip because, of course, um, we have a very guest star packed show today. So let's get to it. This week, we're breaking down season two, episode 11, entitled Back in the World. Per the IMDb synopsis, Crockett flashes to his role during the Saigon evacuation as he and a war correspondent uncover heroin smuggled in body bags. Ten years later in Miami, the H heroin resurfaces and so does the reporter looking for the CIA connection. Let's get right into it. This episode, when I first watched it in reruns when I was in high school, I was blown away with this episode, mainly because of the soundtrack. And this is how this episode kicks off. And since I was obsessed with the doors in grade eight, this episode naturally, because it has the entire soundtrack of this episode, it's only door songs, all eight songs. Yeah, I know. So we'll get into it. That one was of course, Strange Days. We see Crockett's after at least obviously all the fall of Saigon footage being pulled into a room. We don't know with who. And it appears to be lots of body bags in this room. I wrote question mark, is that a morgue? Question mark, is it? air-conditioned, question mark, uh, ew, the smell. <laughs> Sorry, not to take away from the seriousness of this matter that we're getting into. So Sunny is talking to Ira Stone, who we're going to meet later on in Miami, but I'm just going to preface this for you. Basically saying, hey, I want you to see this. Opens the body bag, and you can see Sunny step away a little bit horrified. Not really going to go into the whole detail, but I was like, wait, I don't think that was the style of helmet of Vietnam. I was right, it's not. It doesn't have camouflage, it was just green. And then also you can see Don Johnson's haircut poking underneath. Wouldn't have been shaved off? Wouldn't have been a buzz cut? Or at least like kept very short? So there are details that I was very impressed with later on in the episode. And I say that as someone who is Canadian, <laughs> obviously has no family members who served in Vietnam. But later on in the episode, there was a really interesting fun fact with the zip code that I'm going to get to. So after this revelation of something really disturbing in the body bag, we cut to present day Miami, where surprise, surprise, two spoiled rich kids are caught in their daddy's plane. And this is how they're trying to get out of it. It's my dad's plane. We're not dealers. We were just going to keep it for ourselves. Shut up, Randy. You don't have to say Jack to them. Somehow they don't strike me as the major smack dealers we waited in the woods all night to grab. There's nothing in the plane but a few pounds of pot. It is a giant bag of weed that they find in this plane. So obviously these are not the big time dealers that they've been waiting out for. But as they're hauling the rich kids off, we hear a helicopter land down. And isn't it Crockett's old friend that we saw in the cold open? It's Ira Stone. Now, think about this. They both haven't seen each other for about 10 years. You know, 1975 being the fall of Saigon, present day Miami, we're at 1985 around the time this is being filmed. So obviously they have a few preconceived notions of what they thought they would look like in 10 years. So, uh, you don't look much like a high school football coach to me, or is this how the youth of America prepares for the postseason? <laughs> Wait a minute, pal. At least I got a job. I've been missing your byline for, say, uh, the past 10 years, right? Or did you come here to record uh, this for some teen magazine, uh, Dope Bust of the Month? Oh, no, this isn't my story, man. I came along for the ride because I heard you were going to be here. You know what my real story is, Crockett. No, but I can't wait for you to tell me. Ah, come on, Crockett. Primo dope story of the decade. This sergeant lives. He's back in business right here in South Florida. Let me get my gear. Lunch is going to be on my publisher. Background on this is going to blow your mind. So this gives a little bit more context as to what we were introduced in the cold open. 
heroin bust, what was in those body bags. Now, let's get a little bit superficial because the fashion in this scene is great. And we also learn in this scene as we're looking at the intro credits, this episode was directed by none other than Don Johnson. So we learn a lot in just like this first four minutes of this episode. Crockett once again wearing that white sport coat I love with the zip. Tubbs looking impeccable with the lavender tie. And we have the two rich kids both in wildly different prints. And then Stone just dressed very boring as you would imagine. Blue button up shirt, black blazer. And there was a great shot I got of Tubbs and Crockett talking with almost this perfectly blue sky. There's a little bit of clouds in the bottom left scene. I was very proud of myself for capturing that. I was like, oh, they're just looking at each other. They just look incredibly handsome, well-dressed, impeccable. Can't get enough of this. So remember, Stone is saying all of this stuff to Crockett while Tubbs is there. So all three of them go out to the Carlisle Bar Hotel. Sorry, the bar in the Carlisle Hotel. Say that five times fast. Again, love the decor, love the neon lights, and I love the shot of their table with the mirrors behind them and the mirrors behind them um, meeting perpendicularly and then reflecting the other mirrors inside the bar. Super cool. And this is where it does kind of sound like Ira's nuts, but maybe he is onto something in this next clip. Not all that unusual. But my ears perk up because I hear this stuff is Laotian, right? So I cop and I take this stuff to a chemist and he tells me, all right, now you dig this. this. Stuff is not heroin, it's six acetyl morphine, which is a breakdown product of the old heroin. And the kicker is, what is making all these people sick is it is loaded with methanol. Wood alcohol. It's what they use to preserve the corpses in Vietnam. And what the sergeant stash was soaking in all the way from Tansanat to Tacoma. How do you know that this contaminated stash came from Florida? Boku sources, man. It figures. He would want to move the stuff up north and not dump it on his own doorstep. Yeah. Well, Saigon fell 10 years ago. Why wait till now to move in? And Tubbs does ask a very good question. Why now? Why a decade later? Stone hypothesized that the stash is rotting and he's trying to push it as quickly as he can to recoup some of the losses of sitting on basically this bad stash for so long. And as Tubbs and Crockett are kind of having a little post-drink chat in the car. We see Stone fighting with a beautiful blonde woman in the hotel lobby. Then we cut back to the precinct where Castillo and Crockett are talking about the bad heroin issue that's been popping up in Miami. And Crockett mentions a VA connection and offers to work on his own time to find out what that is. Castillo, however, kind of shuts that down. They're able to do what they can. Stone and Crockett want to go to the VA to ask the veterans who are staying there more details about their friend, unfortunately, who was also staying at the VA, who was also a veteran, who overdosed on this bad batch. And not surprisingly, it doesn't go the way they planned. They're not really open or receptive to talking about what's going on, even though Crockett and Stone have a little bit of a connection with them. They did not fight the same battles that these vets fought. And one of them brought up an incredibly interesting point that I didn't realize until I was much older in life. And this sounds really shallow, but it came from watching movies such as Rambo and Born on the Fourth of July, just how the vets coming back from Vietnam were treated. And he does bring it up in the VA that people are finally taking what happened to these veterans seriously and giving them the respect that was not given to them when they returned from the war and that people are just starting to remember them, which I think is a very good point. And you can tell more in the scene just how hostile he is towards Crockett and Stone. And honestly, I completely understand. Look, I didn't know your friend, but I, I really think I know how you're feeling because I had a lot of friends in the war who ended up tying off uh, one too many times. Then uh, why don't you go talk to one of their roommates? Yeah, so naturally, as you can see, this scene progresses where Stone and Crockett kind of push on, push on, wanting to get more information. I understand that Stone and Crockett 
are there with good intentions. They want to be helpful. They want to get this stuff off the streets. But as you can tell, the vets are really not feeling it. And basically it kind of culminates at the end of the scene where one of the vets basically just tells them to get lost and that they don't really want them interfering with any of their business. Now, I've spoken, um, I've talked a little bit of shit about the VA here in Los Angeles. I will say a recent update that they have at least created tiny homes on the VA property for vets to live in. I don't think that's enough, but it was better than the rows and rows and rows of tents with giant American flags outside on Wilshire Boulevard. So I'm saying a small step in small step in progress is still a step. So I'll give the VA that. I think they should do more. And as we transition to the next scene, if you love 80s nostalgia, please go right now to the Vice and Easy podcast podcast gallery that you can see on my link tree because a worker at the hotel is calling a number from a phone placed on a table outside where Ira's sitting at. Then Ira has an old school tape recorder. He has some maps. Then he has a notebook in which Sergeant is misspelled. To be fair, a lot of the military ranking spellings are incredibly unintuitive when it comes to spelling like Colonel. Lieutenant, I kind of get. I sometimes, if I hadn't grown up in a country where all our labels were in English and French, I wouldn't know how to spell le. Um, and then Sergeant, he forgets the A, the second A. So I was like, I get it, but... And what's also interesting is that in the address book that you can see, they're not fake numbers. They're not 555. So I wonder if that was Bob Balaban's personal address book or just, you know, a prop or someone else is like one of the staff members. But yes, the, the footage of the woman calling and calling and calling repeatedly. And then when he finally is able to get a hold... He's like, oh, you know, I've been out of my office. I thought I missed you, but his office is at the, at the bar patio at this hotel. So I just thought that was funny. If you want a dose of nostalgia. Also, I also thought he spelled Dakota wrong, adding an H to it. But that is, according to IMDb, that is how the character's name is spelled. You will see her later on this episode. I am sorry if you have never seen this episode because I'm just all over the place, kind of spoiling things. There's a lot of guest stars. So I think that's it too. I totally forgot to say that Ira Stone is Bob Balaban. And then Dakota is actually played by Iman. So this is a very exciting episode. And this next scene, we get to an incredibly beautiful scene where I mean like cinematically incredibly beautiful where Crockett and Stone are sitting out on Crockett's scarab. Never know if I pronounced that right. Can't be bothered to look it up. Uh, with the Miami, the very old school, very tiny Miami skyline in the 80s compared to what it is now. They're talking about their experience with the Vietnam War. And Crockett is telling the story that really does hit home with you at the end. It kind of put me off at first, the first time I watched it, because it does, unfortunately, trigger warning, mention death and animals and putting down animals. So skip ahead about a minute if that obviously naturally would bother you. And just how that kind of leads to PTSD in the same scene. So I actually thought the scene was well done. Once again, quick reminder before I play this clip, trigger warning, animal abuse. He's blowing away these dogs because he's trained them so righteously that they're too damn dangerous to bring back to the United States. And I kept thinking, I should blow him away for the same reason. And someone should blow me away. And as Crockett's finishing up this thought, kind of owning to how your mindset is so completely changed after seeing the things you've seen, and unfortunately relating it to the dog that has to be put down because he, that dog has been trained to kill and attack and the mindset has been so warped on this dog that it's not fit to enter society. And only now in 2022 are we like having frank discussions about mental health and PTSD and helping people transition back into civilian life after seeing these horrible monstrosities, and especially for Vietnam, only the stories that I've read have been so traumatizing and so horrific. I can't imagine living them. So I understand what Crockett is saying and that 
they're really not getting their due or the care. And then seeing the VA, seeing these men still not feeling heard or respected because they weren't treated like that when they got home. They were spit on and they were completely forgotten about by society. Sorry. And then it gets more depressing. Bombs start going off in the water around the boat. Stone screams out incoming as if they were back in Vietnam. And we can't really see where these bombs are coming from or these explosions are coming from. We just see them targeting Crockett Scarab. So luckily he's able to swim off. And we see this mysterious man who was the one sending off those explosives towards Crockett's boat. Dun, dun, dun. We have no idea what's happening there. Then, back at the precinct, they're kind of talking about what's going over. Tubbs and Zwitek are going to go undercover to try to get a little bit closer. They're going to go visit this guy named Harold. <laughs> First of all, in this scene, Zwitek actually kind of looks good in the leather getup because he's a little bit heavier, he's a little bit huskier. It kind of lends more credence to like that look but they're playing five to one and five to one thematically refers to the youth outnumbering the older population and the youth having the power and the youth having more say and more ground and kind of you know it's kind of a song about like revolution and change so just having that to juxtapose with an undercover weird leather get up going to kind of this like sketchy looking apartment building to find out where this guy scored heroin is just very weird to me. Sorry about that cut. There is no clip like I thought. So when they go in, they start asking him questions. Um, he's already tied one off. So he's already coming in and out of consciousness. Um, they find the tainted heroin. Zwitek goes to call for a medic. Tubbs is kind of trying to wake him up, ask questions. He just kind of mentions Dakota, Dakota, and like a very soft-spoken voice. But that's unfortunately all the information he gives him. But I also took a picture because he's watching Dr. Ruth in the background. <laughs> very timely. I love this. This is a very 80s-centric episode um, in such a great way. I know it's a very depressing topic to talk about veterans' mental health and how hard it is to transition back into society. But like thematically and the decor, this episode, chef's kiss. And I mentioned that because this next scene, I'm scrolling through the pictures on my phone as I'm kind of reading my notes at the same time. So it's just like, you know, when like that meme of like the eyes in the two different directions. So Stone is again at a hotel bar with a rotary phone propped up on the bar with, I don't even know what drink that appears to be. It looks to be maybe like a spritz or something. There's no ice in it that I can tell and it's clear. No garnish either. Could just be water, but I highly doubt that they would just let him sit at the bar for hours making calls drinking water. <laughs> be like, you gotta get by something or get out, buddy. But speaking of Dakota, Stone is calling Dakota at the bar. Dun, dun, dun. So next scene, Crockett and Stone are pulling up to the party. Very reesh, reesh, very nice. Again, they're talking to their old old captain, also known as, quote, Mr. Real Estate. And when I say they're talking, I am completely making a mistake. It is actually Stone the one that has some kind of communication with him that got him the invite to this party. You can see how Stone really feels in this next clip. I thought you uh, got along with this guy. Yeah, that was in country, man. I got along with everybody back there. This is the real world. Interesting way to put that. Also interesting to note that the song they're playing, I didn't actually recognize it, was The Spy by The Doors. Not one of their bigger hits, but interesting choice to say the least. Please again, go to the gallery, look at the decor of this house. It is not as garish and over the top usually as you know that I like, but it is very glass block heavy. Very uh, interesting geometric shapes placed around the perimeter. Beautiful outdoor pool. Beautiful... Um, circles carved to the wall so you can see people very funny and they are able to talk to their old captain they're able to move into his office interesting to note so this character is played by g gordon liddy who actually has a very interesting connection with politics that we'll get into later 
because I saw like Nixon and Kissinger on his wall and I'm like trying to think like, okay, what direction is this episode going? Not knowing who he was, of course, growing up in Canada, I didn't know who this guy was. And when the actor himself or the person himself, G. Gordon Liddy, in the 90s, he was a conservative talk show host. So again, I wouldn't have been listening to that as an eight-year-old in Canada anyway. So I had no idea who this guy was until like four days ago. So that also, yeah, tripped me up a little bit. But again, gorgeous office because um, the back is just glass. So you can see out into the party. Crockett, as always, and maybe because John Jones was directing this episode, he's like, I have to be the most good looking person in every scene except for Iman by a million. So he looks like a million bucks in every single scene in this episode. I've tried to compile a list or not a list, but like a gallery. I should just have a gallery just only of Crockett in this episode because once again, he's wearing one of my favorite items, the striped gray, like the heather gray, or I guess I would say like salt and pepper gray. Um, I guess heather gray is kind of one shade salt and pepper. You have like specks of white, specks of black that make it into gray, but it's not completely uniform. Maybe it's striped. It looks to be striped, light gray, dark gray, what have you with a unbuttoned, very pale coral orange shirt with white pants. I was noting my boyfriend was watching this episode with me and he's like, that is completely way oversized. I was like, yes, I know it was the eighties, but it's because his blazer is oversized and his pants are oversized. So you see Don Johnson's very fit, narrow waist, but it's just kind of ballooned by the oversized blazer and by the pants. So I think you got to do one or the other, probably an oversized jacket and then more slimmer cut pants. And now let's get down to the discussion as opposed to me talking about Don Johnson for 25 minutes. <laughs> So as they're talking about what's going on, Crockett and Stone are obviously there for information. Ask him if he's heard about, you know, the OD or any of this bad stuff going on within Miami. And he's a little more cold and more closed off than one would have assumed in this next clip. Probably what happened was... Wait, 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 wait. Before I get... (laughs) This guy? Is that his real voice? And he had... He was a commentator for that many years with that voice. That is, <laughs> wow. My sources tell me they didn't either. These things happen. End of story. A short one, unfortunately for you. I know how disappointed you must be after all these years. You know what you are, man? You're a pig. A USDA certified P.I.G. The world is a very complicated place, son. The world is a world of hurt because guys and guys like you are always spooking around in it with your duplicitous games and your assassins and your extreme prejudice. If you say so, Stone. I say so! Okay, superficial note, his voice does sound a little bit more level and even there. It just sounded so like cartoon supervillain <laughs> and nasally in that first clip I heard. I was like, wait, 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 wait. Like, I've watched this episode, but I watched it like a week and a half ago. So it's kind of like outside of my... <laughs> Sorry, that was actually like a really good scene by Bob Balaban. I just ruined it for all of you listening, but... <laughs> Oh, man. And as Crockett and Stone are exiting the party, Stone just wants to let this whole thing go. He says he's completely over it. He says that he was lying and that believing that the sergeant was still alive was BS. You can tell that he's super, super, super uncomfortable. And he's so uncomfortable, in fact, that he steals Crockett's Ferrari and leaves the party. Now, after this whole debacle, we see Maynard, sorry, that is his name. I keep saying Mr. Real Estate, Captain Maynard. We see a great shot of him, of his profile through the window. Then we see the focus shift from his face to a little hole in the wall by a big hole in the wall. I need to look up what these, the proper technical archaeology, arch, oh my God, architectural term is for the giant holes in the walls from the 80s where you could pass by and see people's faces. But... We see the guy that bombed Crockett's boat in the backyard of Maynard. Dun, dun, dun. And we switch gears pretty quickly as (laughs) Tom's and Zwitek are at this bar meeting Dakota with an H. Zwitek is still in his leathers. (laughs) Oh, 
too funny, too funny. Uh, but again, Iman looks beautiful and like a million bucks. So now we know who Dakota is. Dakota is the source for this bad heroine. I shouldn't say source. She is the link. And we get a little bit more intel with her and what we're doing. A little bit of cute banter between her and Tubbs in this next scene. I'm trying to get in touch with an old Laotian friend of mine. I'm sure he'll be very happy to see me. Oh, yeah? Why is that? Because I hear that he's getting older by the minute. Now I can afford his company and your fee. I would play more of that banter, but the Roadhouse Blues is going to give me another copyright claim. So as they're kind of going back and forth, it's revealed that her source is a journalist. She believes that he's funneling money in from his magazine, that his money not be, might not be his own. So again, Tubbs, a little light is going off in Tubbs's head and they kind of push back and forth. And he, Tubbs is like, you know, well, my money is real. It comes from my pocket. I want to do business with you. And, you know, she said that she's never met this guy, but that she knows he's a journalist. So with that, Tubbs decides to ask Crockett how much he really knows about Stone anyway. Naturally, like it does with every conversation that Tubbs has to prompt Crockett to open up about an old friend that's coming to the picture. It's a theme that repeats a lot, as we've seen in just only two seasons of doing this recap podcast. But they got a little bit more information. They now know that the Ferrari was seen spotted by Gina at a spot by the causeway, kind of like a seedy looking hotel called the Marlin. Ah, very cheesy with blue green stucco, kind of a little bit run down. So they get the room number, they go in to visit. Who else opens the door but beautiful Patty Darbinville. In real life, Don Johnson's ex-girlfriend and mother of his son, Jesse, who is a spitting image of his father. But I digress because I think I'm going to dedicate uh, a Vice T episode to her. Maybe also to Barbara Streisand. I'm trying to split up the women in Don Johnson's life. Not exactly chronologically, but like on how much story there is so keep eyes posted for that you'll probably get that next week or two but i digress i really like her she's very cute i've seen her in a couple things but in this scene again she's being directed by her boyfriend so maybe he was just like go over the top because she is over stone and she gives them a lot of intel more than they were probably ready to hear he called me down here from New York. He said this trip was going to fix everything for us. Ha, ha. A second honeymoon, he said. Now that all the work is done on this big secret story, all the suffering from the war is finally going to amount to something. Yes, oh yes. Poor Stone and all his psychic wounds. I get here, and all he needs is money. It kind of keeps going on like that. He's a junkie. He's a liar. He's been to rehab and detox seven times. Like, she is just hanging him out to dry. But it just seems like she's a better actress than this performance. Like, she's cute. She's a better actress. So I don't... Because it gets, like, really dark at the end where she's like, I hope he dies and, like, tells Crockett and Tubbs off. Like, I understand maybe that they're trying to portray that maybe she is also on something that would alter her behavior, which would make more sense. That's what I'm kind of taking this as. Oh, another thing to note before I move on, she's complaining about some bimbo calling all the time. After they leave the room, after she's already had her little temper tantrum, they, Tubbs hypothesizes that the bimbo that's calling is Dakota, the heroin hookup. So we go back to the bar to visit Dakota. <laughs> Crockett just gets there. This guy's sitting on a chair with Dakota just shoves the guy. I am making a gift for this. I'm going to try to make it a TikTok. I want to go viral just because of how funny it is. I remember when I saw this, I just started cackling laughing. Oh my God. And so Crockett naturally, they are pissed and they want information from Dakota. He grabs her face. Not like, not in like a super abusive, like fearful way, but in like, you're looking me right in the eyes and you're telling me the truth. Who's he meeting there? I don't know. Take a guess. I've never met my source. He's got some child with pointy teeth that's his middle man. That's the only man I've met. Is she telling the truth? Absolutely. 
Obviously, it goes without saying that Iman looks incredibly beautiful in every single scene that she's in. Obviously, she was a world-famous supermodel. We'll get more into a little bit of her vice tea later. But now they are on the hunt. They are going to track down Stone and whoever he's meeting at this warehouse. Now, in the previous clip I played, I've listened to that a million times. I was not sure what she said. I was like, possibly there was an ethnic slur in there. I could not understand for the life of me. I watched this episode three times, listened to that clip a million times. So again, I apologize after the fact, not before. So I do apologize for that. Now, they're doing this recon outside of the warehouse in, guess, guess, not the bug van, just a regular blue van. Similar, didn't we also have a blue van in Cool Running? Interesting, keep that in mind. And this kind of takes a wild turn as Crockett scales the wall of this warehouse to kind of get in, break on through by the doors is playing, which I do think is like thematically, it fits with what's going on in this scene. Stone is talking to a guy, oh, I can't, about golfing. Okay, that's apparently what I wrote. <laughs> Basically, oh, now I can read my sentence. Stone is talking to a guy about golfing, about being paid, about getting paid off to kill the stories. Thank you for bearing with me. As another week of trying to read my own notes. One more time. I'll try to edit this out, but if I forget. Stone is talking to a guy about getting paid off in order to kill the story. So they follow Stone's car in the van to see where he's meeting this supplier and this other person that he was with. So the car realizes they're being followed, speeds off, and then their van, as they're trying to like maneuver and get to it, so the other car speeds off, makes a quick right, dodges what is in essence a garbage van, garbage truck, and the van smashes into the back. And then the van is hoisted up a little bit out of the air by the prongs and Crockett and Tubbs, you know, struggle to escape. They finally get out. Tubbs is able to get a decent look at the guy driving the car while Crockett is opening fire. Tubbs reports back that he said it's a guy in his 50s with a mustache. Wonder who that could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's selling all right selling out it's the American dream Tubbs interesting so that was a very interesting scene now I'm since I couldn't read my notes I will quickly summarize this before I move on Stone was meeting with the gentleman revealed to be Captain Maynard about getting paid off to kill the story in fact thereby we hypothesize, we can correctly assume that Captain Maynard is going to pay Stone to kill the story and that Maynard is involved with the distribution of this bad heroine and that he was in fact the sergeant that they mentioned in Vietnam. The one that Crockett mentioned on early in the episode, they thought he was CIA because every place he went into, quote unquote, got hot. Now, Sadly for Patty Darbinville, this is the last scene we see her in. I think she deserves her better than this material. She looks amazing as she gets in the cab. She has these um, kind of blue plastic earrings. Again, she has a very beautiful face with like a very beautiful little upturned nose, small chin, very feminine, very delicate, and these very fun 80s bangs. She's, again, giving attitude to the cab driver. And I was like, girl, you should be a little bit nicer to people in the service industry in any industry. And then I was like, oh, the cab driver is the same guy who bombed Crockett's boat. So this is not going to end well for her. Now we actually have a more emotional scene as Crockett is looking over his medals from Vietnam. I see a purple heart in there. And I learned today, because I was looking at this postal code, which is 96600. So where is that? Then it turns out that that is the zip code for naval, military, and marines. So that makes sense when you're sending letters abroad, that would be the zip code that would kind of get categorized in depending on where they need to go. So I was like, oh, that's actually very sweet. Today I learned that. 
And as he's going through his old keepsakes, he shows Tubbs a picture of Maynard. And Tubbs IDs him as the guy he saw in the car. Croc is kind of going over, you know, the characteristics of Maynard that he really liked. He would always ask Crockett about football and what Croc was going to do back in the world. Mentions a little bit more what I mentioned that they all thought he was CIA. And then Tubbs brings up a very interesting point. And it was this tremendous source of information for Stone. Maybe Stone knew that Maynard was a sergeant before he came down here. I don't want to think about that. But I gotta believe that he knew he was gonna blackmail the sergeant if he found him. All he needed was for somebody to lead him to him. <laughs> what are old friends for, right? And that soothing kind of chill Jan Hammer instrumental you hear in the background, that is simply titled Stone's War. I really like that though, it kind of just like fits the mood very well. And then let's get super superficial in this next scene where Crockett and Tubbs go to Maynard's to get a little bit more information. They run into his wife, who I thought she was so rude for the scene because she's practicing her forehand tennis swings. Whatever, totally fine. It's not as if she's practicing with a trainer that she can't, or she's playing a game like she can't leave. She's practicing with the machine. So it's even ruder that she can't just pause the machine for five minutes to talk to Crockett and Tubbs. She's talking to them as she's practicing her hits. So she mentions that he's out in the keys at his little shack. No telephone reception, no service out there. So they'll have to go down in person if they have anything to talk to him about. She wants to relay the message that um, he left for her about Mr. Crockett that he's very concerned about Stone's well-being, blah, 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 blah. Then she also kind of just mentions in passing that he took the gardener with him. And they press him for a little bit more information. It turns out that they knew each other back in Laos. Everything clicks. This is the gentleman that bombed Crockett's boast. This is the gentleman that we saw in Maynard's property at the party after he was talking with Crockett and Stone. Everything is kind of coming together. So Crockett and Tubbs go down to the Keys and I can tell 100% that this is supposed to kind of be reminiscent of Vietnam because usually when we're seeing Crockett with the scarab or with, you know, even the same Vitus dance, we're, we're going pretty fast. But this appears to be a dead calm zone, which means that you can't use your motor. And then Crockett is punting, meaning he's using that big stick to push against the ground to get the boat to move and not using a motor. So it's just kind of trying to harken back to the days of the Vietnam War as we're setting up for this final showdown between Crockett, Tubbs, Maynard, and we also assume Stone. So picture this, Crockett and Tubbs are slowly making their way down to this isolated cabin. We see the housekeeper, Mr. Mung, watching them through the bushes. And we see him kind of go back to the cabin to report. This is a very interesting scene because I think this is a very interesting way to look at the world. You know, of course, that in most parts of the world, pain is a second language. People understand it better than words because you can get right to the point. But in this country, we don't really have very much pain. So the second language is money. Naturally, you'd expect to receive money for what you know instead of pain. How ironic. Now, that is an incredibly interesting point. And it is not one that I disagree with. Actually, I do, in fact, agree with it. But I do think since we are talking about veterans of the Vietnam War and how they're treated and how they weren't welcomed back into society the way, same way that veterans of World War II and the Korean War were, I think they kind of could have made that messaging a little bit more clear. Again, it's only a, you know, 47 minute, maybe 48 minute long episode of a TV show. It wasn't here to exactly change the world, but that really stuck with me. And it is true. And my father would always say this, like, you know, just most immigrant fathers were when they had a sad daughter. It's just like, well, you're, you're a dual citizen. What are you sad about? Or you're born a first world country. What are you sad about? And it's just like, 
I only know the world in which I know. I don't, and you're trying to explain that for someone who is a refugee or had to flee, like they don't get it. And I'm not trying to compare what I went through to what my father went through or what people, you know, actual survivors went through. But yeah, like, especially for him, when he was going and growing up, it was not only hearing about the survivors of World War II, of the Holocaust, and that collective trauma that destroyed families for generations and generations, and that brutality. So for him, having to deal with that, and to lesser extent, you know, him having to flee, and then to see me, you know, being sad about what have you after being raised in two first world countries. <laughs> I get it, but you know, people can only see what's in front of them and they only know the experiences and which are in their environment. So I don't know where I was really going with that point. Let's get back to the story. So it turns out that uh, Maynard has kidnapped Stone, for lack of a better word. And Stone is again, trying to counter, basically say that, you know, 20 minutes or manuscript is gonna go in the mail. He uh, turns that around on him and tells him that basically the manuscript that he's talking about, Maynard just pops out of a briefcase, says right here, and then alludes to possibly having Stone's ex-wife killed. Basically, he says that um, your divorce went through and then throws the ring back at Stone. I'm going to take that to mean that Miss Stone is no more. And then after delivering that speech, the pain as a currency speech. Mr. Monk comes back to the house, whispers something to Maynard, ends up shooting Stone. Crockett and Tubbs hear the gunshots, race after it. Once they're able to break into the house, they see Stone grasping at his transcript again, screaming out for a medic, you know, very akin to his experiences of Vietnam and what he saw. Like, you can tell that he is definitely suffering from PTSD. Crockett says, you ain't great, but you'll but you'll make it. And then Crockett and Tubbs run out to a very interesting cat and mouse game in the swamp to the tune of My Eyes Have Seen You by the Doors. And I actually enjoy this kind of cat and mouse because they're moving very silently through the jungle. Crockett and Tubbs are communicating, but not verbally, which is also very interesting because, again, it's so quiet and still that you you know, scare any duck or anything, you're going to bring attention to yourself. So I thought that was very interesting kind of seeing Crockett using the skills that he learned in the Vietnam War and then able to bring that to work with his partner without even having to talk about it, which I thought was very interesting. There is a moment where Crockett sees something move, points his gun, and it is Tubbs. And you can see how relieved Crockett is once he realized that he did not fire, that it's Tubbs. And as they continue on to this little cat and mouse game, they do stumble upon Mr. Mung. As he's switching from, you hear that little click like when you turn the safety off. So they hear that click, they get him first. However, Maynard, they are not able to get. He runs off, takes his boat, sails off into the sunset or so he thinks, but again, Crockett tells Tubbs there's something they can do, but to call the Coast Guard and have the Coast Guard nab him. They go back into the cabin. Stone is shaking a little bit. They can tell that he's cold. Crockett, they're going to have a medic come. Crockett holds him, wraps him up in a blanket as they wait for the medic to arrive. And Stone just keeps repeating, keeps repeating. Is that ironic? And despite how that sounds, luckily in the end, Stone is going to be okay. But that isn't that ironic, kind of harking back to the previous conversation about pain. Pain is a currency. And then using money instead in exchange for what you know here in America, because we don't grow up with that kind of collective pain, was very interesting. Um, I thought that they did kind of leave the mystery of Stone a little bit open-ended, and now I see why. Obviously, Stone does come back in season three, because at this end of the episode, you have no idea, like, is he crazy? Was he just needing this money for his drug fix? And I did like that they kind of kept it open-ended, and you kind of perceive from this episode what you will. But let's get down to it. Let's talk about some of these guest stars in Vice T. 
very happy to report not really anything scandalous on Bob Balaban. I remember there was that Simpsons joke. Ned was dating the celebrity after Maude had passed away. And because Ned wouldn't move things fast enough, she ended up marrying Bob Balaban. <laughs> but he's been in everything. When I mean everything, everything, he's still actively working to this day. You can see his IMDb. It's a very full varied IMDb profile, but you'll know him from Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Seinfeld, Ghost World, everything. So you've definitely, Gosford Park, you know, you've definitely seen him in lots of stuff. An actor who can be very funny, very serious. Now, G. Gordon Liddy, who played Captain Maynard, he worked for the FBI under J. Edgar Hoover, and he was arrested after he organized. He did not actively break in, but he organized the burglary of the Democratic headquarters in Watergate. Also, I want to clarify, he was not actively working for the FBI when he was arrested. He was working as a White House operative, but uh, he refused to testify to the Senate committee about Watergate. Sentenced to about 20 years in prison, ended up, his sentence was commuted by then-President Jimmy Carter, and he served almost five years in prison. Um, Jimmy Carter had originally commuted his sentence from 20 years to eight, and then I guess with time served, good behavior, when he was up for parole after about four and a half years, he was released. Uh, so very interesting. That also makes sense why his character would have Nixon and Henry Kissinger up on the wall. And then, like I said later, he did have a career in conservative talk show radio hosting. I did not know who this man was before this episode. Didn't seem like someone I'd be interested anyway. May he rest in peace. Now moving on to Iman. In my opinion, the fashion star of this episode. Incredibly beautiful model. I'm sure you've seen her before. Uh, originally born in Somalia to a ambassador father and a gynecologist mother. She was discovered or she was scouted as a model while studying at the University of Nairobi. Um, it was funny. There was this kind of urban legend that she had been discovered in the jungle I forget who said it, some photographer. This was, again, coming from my mother, so it's like broke a telephone. But basically, she was discovered in the jungle. And then in actuality, like, no, she went to boarding school in Egypt. Her father was an ambassador to Saudi Arabia. Like, she she grew up pretty affluent, and she was discovered at university. But um, her makeup line was super cool and groundbreaking. At the time, she wanted to expand the makeup and foundation shades that were available to women of color because she had so much problem in having to mix different shades of foundation to get one that suited her. So this was very groundbreaking for the time. Um, love life. She's dated Warren Beatty. She was mentored to Spencer Haywood, had a child with them. Then, of course, married David Bowie in 1992 in Switzerland. Also had a child, a daughter with him. And they were together up until his sad early passing in 2016 but incredibly cool stylish icon who really did a lot of groundbreaking things within the beauty industry for women of color and again gorgeous and incredibly well styled this entire episode last but not least patty darwinville i'm gonna save her for another episode she's gonna get maybe a standalone maybe a split episode when i kind of cover the women of don johnson in my upcoming vice t series now, in a surprise to absolutely nobody, our wild card winner is, of course, a Zwitek in the leathers, pulling it off. <laughs> and then, honestly, our director slash star of this episode, he styled himself incredibly well because not only do we have the white sport coat that I know and love, along with the gray striped blazer that I know and love, we also have him looking incredibly handsome in the VA with the pink pants pink the white shoes the pink pants and the white blazer looking like a million bucks this entire episode he just looks like a million bucks so just can't get enough of him even when they are on the boat he still looks impeccable in a coral blazer pink undershirt and white pants i would never take white pants anywhere near the water so he is a braver man than i am because they knew where they were going, right? Like, they knew they had to go to the Keys. But I guess, to be fair, he wasn't going to go home and change and then go find out where Stone is being held at ransom. So, to be fair, he was being a good friend by not changing. And Tubbs does look handsome, but can't hold a candle to the director in this episode, I guess. And then, obviously, my best dressed woman is 100% going to be Iman. Second place, 
it's going to be an accessory win, but it's going to be Patty Darbinville's or aka Mrs. Stone's blue earrings in the cab scene. And then as we wrap this down with music, this is a very easy one because it is all the same artists, The Doors, which I really appreciate. It's cute when I was watching the credits, which look a little bit different because it was only the coastline of Miami. We don't get, you know, sometimes we get little different uh, clips interspliced. You get the high lie and the greyhound racing and what have you. This was just the coastline. And it does say special thanks to The Doors. So I think that is really cool. They were able to use one artist catalog to convey this entire episode to convey different emotions to signify different times all kind of leading back to the end of the vietnam war and the fall of saigon in 1975 obviously the doors you know being more prominent in the 60s during the vietnam war definitely being listened to overseas by the men who were fighting um to even fitting into the 1980s you know like the hottest show on television so i think that is incredibly cool and as a huge mega fan of the doors back in the day this episode was one of my favorites as a teenager now looking back on it i think it could have been improved a little bit storyline wise but again we have to know what we're working with we're just working with primetime tv episodes i don't think they could have made a huge arc out of this but stone does return in season three so we'll get back to talking a little bit more about that later so we start off the first song with Strange Days, then the crystal ship at the VA, five to one. Still think that doesn't thematically fit with the whole leather daddy trying to get junky from this guy. Then the spy, very thematically interesting, knowing what we know now about the housekeeper, who uh, was uncredited. I couldn't find out who played him or what have you or any information on him. Then Roadhouse Blues, we get to the bar, more fitting. Break on through to the other side as Sunny is scaling the wall of the warehouse. Very fitting. I can't see your face in my mind and my eyes have seen you as kind of like the last two songs when we get to the jungle portion of the episode. That is supposed to harken back to the days of Vietnam. So a very interesting episode. Again, loved the musical element of it. And as always, Bob Balaban really was able to convey a lot of emotions. Who really knew what was going on with Stone? And then we also get an appearance by the actual girlfriend at the time of Don Johnson and the mother of his child. So she will not be the only mother of his child to appear in Miami Vice, but I thought that was very sweet. And as we wrap this episode of Vice and Easy up, just want to thank you all again for listening, for liking, for sharing, for subscribing. I really appreciate being patient and understanding as... I go through different things with my career and personal life that might make giving a weekly recap a possibility for the next month. I will have uh, do as much as I can, but you're probably going to get a lot more of ice tea than you were expecting. So I hope you're in the mood for gossip is all I'm going to say. So thank you again for bearing with me as good things hopefully will be coming into my, my present and my future. You can find me everywhere at all things social at Vice and Easy Podcast. Feel free to like, follow, and subscribe wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple, Spotify. By the way, they finally restored my cover art, so all my glorious cover art is now back. So thank you so much for that. Keep an eye out for that. Or if there's some episodes you want to check back on in, in the catalog while, you know, I'm giving you all more Vice tea than you expected, feel free to do so. As always, thank you once again. I'll see you next week. And as always. Hey, man, Miami Wise is number one new show.